Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Immigration and efforts to reform the system have been perennial issues in the United States since its founding. But have you ever wondered what it's really like to be an immigrant in this country? Reading Roya Hakakian's latest book, A Beginner's Guide to America, I thought back to the stories my parents told me when they immigrated from India to Northwest Pennsylvania in the late 1970s. How much did they keep from me? And if I had known everything, how would it have changed how I viewed my parents' story in this country? Roya Hakakian came to the U.S. as a refugee from Iran with her family in the 1980s. She's an author and poet who now lives in Connecticut, and she joins me for the hour. Roya, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be with you. Again, your latest book is A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. You've written several books, including Journey from the Land of No. You're a poet, publishing at least two collections of poetry in Persian. Tell us a little bit about your story. As a child growing up in Iran, what was it like before the 1979 revolution? You know, I keep saying that it's probably nostalgia that makes my childhood seem um, even more idyllic uh, than probably it was. But what I remember is a, a religiously eclectic neighborhood where we had on, on a small block um, people and neighbors from all sorts of religious backgrounds. And, and it was really um, a magical thing where... I knew that, you know, the people who were on my right in the house beside us were Christian Armenians and the people across the streets were Zoroastrian Iranians and the people to my left were Baha'i Iranians. And um, and then my best friend on the street, um, about whom I write a great deal in my memoir, Journey from the Land of No was um, a Shiite Muslim girl in in a big family of seven children. And, you know, we all got along and life was uh, uh, quite peaceful until the 1979 revolution came in February and uh, things were never the same. Your family is Persian Jewish. So talk about the community in Iran. Um, many Americans who may not know a lot about Iran, it probably surprises them to hear you talk about how eclectic uh, your old neighborhood was. <laughs> exactly. And um, a lot of people who hear that um, I was born and raised Jewish in Iran um, are surprised to hear that there were Jews in Iran at all, whereas um, there were Jews in Iran, or I should say the history of Jewish presence in Iran precedes the history of Muslim presence in Iran. Um, and Jews are so much more indigenous to Iran than um, anybody knows. Um, you know, we, um, we had a, a community of about 100,000 uh, plus Jews 
uh, prior to 1979 in Iran. And I attended a Hebrew day school until I was in seventh or eighth grade, which is when the revolution uh, happened. And, um, um, you know, we we practiced, uh, there were synagogues, and uh, unlike the memories that my parents had about growing up Jewish in Iran in, in their youth, where uh, my father especially had been born and raised in a small village called Khonsar, um, and he had been subject uh, you know, 80, 90 years ago to a lot of anti-Semitism. Um, I, g- born and raised in Tehran, really didn't experience what he had experienced. I, um, you know, um, I felt myself mm, just another kid on the block and uh, didn't really um, uh, feel anything overtly um, or even not overtly. Um, that was exercised um, against me or toward me because of my religion, um, which which is a great statement about how far Iran had come from the decades past where my father uh, had been born to my time and how much more we had become um, an egalitarian society in a matter of three or four decades. And then the Islamic Revolution happened. And how did that impact your family, Roya? Um, well, the Islamic Revolution happened. And, and one of the things that really shook the Jewish community in Iran was the execution of a Jewish industrialist and a philanthropist um, who had been uh, one of the most important uh, figures within the business community. He had brought plastic to Iran, and his name was Habib El Ghanian, and he had established factories that produced uh, plastic products. So he was he was a major employer, but he was also um, a major figure in the modernization of Iran in the 20th century. What was very shocking was that El Ghanian, who had been a beloved figure both within the Jewish community and outside of the Jewish community, uh, was among the first uh, leaders to be uh, arrested and then summarily, um, very quickly executed. And that fact uh, threw shockwaves um, in the Jewish community because um, it was interpreted as a sign of worse things to come and other executions to follow. Um, there, there were not uh, further executions that came, or at least not immediately, but um, nonetheless, the execution of El Ghanian about eight weeks after the success of the Iranian revolution in 1979 caused uh, the Iranian Jewish community to really uproot itself. And then, you know, the laws changed. And one of the things I always um, feel compelled to say was that um, the laws after the revolution were designed in such a way that they gave privilege to practicing Shiite Muslims. Um, so, and that's, that's a very important distinction because um, it wasn't so, so that laws were written to eliminate Jews from society or uh, there were anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic laws that were written. Rather, it, they were laws that were written to give uh, an advantage to those uh, Muslims who were practicing and were Shiite. Um, and, I, and I say that because 
there are also Sunni Muslims in Iran, and they were at a disadvantage too. And there were, um, you know, Christians and uh, Baha'is and Zoroastrians and um, and all sorts of other uh, religious groups who um, were uh, somewhat relegated to second-class citizenship because um, in comparison or in various competitions, they could not do as well as uh, Shiite Muslims would do. And, and a prime example of that is, you know, universities had a major entrance exam, um, you know, uh, and it, a, a moral component was added to these university exams. And so it wasn't enough that you scored high, um, you know, on on the subjects of science and math or whatever else, but you also had to uh, prove yourself morally and and you could prove yourself morally, of course, if you were a practicing Shiite person uh, for whom, you know, the local mosque could vouch. And that's how slowly um, others who were not, um, who didn't belong to this community began to lose uh, their momentum and their advantage in the Iranian society. I understand uh, during this time after the Ayatollah uh, came to power, your brothers had already been in the U.S. Uh, as students. So what was the turning point when your family decided it was time to leave? Well, um, in 1980, um, Iraq attacked Iran um, and, and a full-blown war followed. Um, and, you know, there were moments throughout that war which lasted nearly 10 years, and it's one of the longest, uh, most devastating wars of the last century. Uh, there were moments that the war could have come to a peaceful end or there could have been negotiations, but um, but the Iranian leadership somewhat embraced this attack because it allowed them to exercise other um, ideological agendas that they had, including um, their, you know, the major agenda of uh, freeing um, Israel or, you know, returning Israel to the Palestinians. So, you know, the, the big slogan in those days was, um, we welcome this attack because it will give us or speed up the opportunity for us to um, uh, go through Baghdad and then uh, reach Jerusalem, which meant that and they were not only going to defeat the Iraqi attack, but also um, move on further to, um, you know, so-called liberate um, uh, Palestine. And and so once the war uh, just seemed to become never-ending, uh, it was very clear to my family that my brothers couldn't return because they would be conscripted in the war and they would have to serve. And it wasn't something that any of us wanted them to do. So. Um, it left us with no choice other than leaving Iran. That must have been difficult for you as, a, again, a child who, as you described, had a wonderful, wonderful upbringing. Uh, do you, what, what do you remember about that time when your, your parents told you or your, I know you came here with your mother that it was time to leave your homeland? I, I didn't want to leave. Um, I was a teenager. I had just begun writing in Persian. And even though I was 15, 16, um, people were taking me seriously. And, you know, I guess uh, there's nothing more joyous to be uh, an aspiring poet or writer and have grown-ups who know literature tell you that you're a talent. And so that really um, moved me. And it was 
um, it it also made me realize that um, I had something that I wanted to do, that I had a direction. And um, while I was I was kind of developing um, as a writer, um, you know, suddenly my parents told me that we were going to leave, and it was unimaginable for me. Um, to leave the land of that literature and that language that I had just begun to find a footing in. Um, so I, I was against it. I fought tooth and nail to stay for as long as I could. And I think I managed to delay my parents until I got my um, high school diploma. Again, you're hearing Roya Hakakian here on Where We Live. She's an author and poet. She lives in Connecticut. Her latest book is A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. You talk about uh, this place that poetry had in your life, but your father was also a poet. Can you give us more of a glimpse of how poetry is such a central part of Persian culture? Um, it was certainly in my childhood, and I think... Um, it, it was, you know, for lack of a better comparison or metaphor, um, it was the equivalent of, you know, baseball for an American. It's what we did. It was um, not simply a form of art or uh, an expression of literature. It was also a national hobby and a pastime and a way that the best way, the most significant way in which um, the Iranian self expressed itself. Um, and, and what was very uh, entertaining for me when I was um, just beginning to write um, at the cusp of sort of uh, adolescence was that my father had caught me uh, writing and, uh, and reading a lot of poetry. And I was reading modern poetry um, uh, of a new generation uh, that my father and his generation didn't really take seriously. So he started uh, making fun. Uh, with me um, of the things I was reading. So we um, used to banter. He used to um, write classical poetry that was rhymed and, you know, musically sound um, to say that the poetry I was reading wasn't good enough. And I would in return write in modern unrhymed poetry that um, his classical poetry was only uh, concerned with music and not content and I didn't take that seriously so we would go back and forth in writing um, <clears throat> but all along uh, we were composing poems um, even though in two separate traditions um, and I and it and this is one of the highlights of my adolescence mm. That must have been a really lovely experience and when you look back at your poetry as a teenager what do you think today Roya? Well, it was very, very bad. <laughs> I'm glad that uh, a lot of it is lost um, because, you know, uh, so little survives, um, you know, crossing the continents. Um, but but it was a great time because I think um, it allowed my father and me to develop um, a, a different relationship that wasn't just the father-daughter relationship. It was also uh, an exchange between uh, two generations that viewed poetry in, in entirely different ways. Um, but he did it so lovingly and, um, and so wittily. And, um, you know, I, I was going through his notes um, since he had passed away and I was uh, trying to put together 
a collection of uh, his poems um, and I came across some of them and uh, it brought back so many memories of, of those years. You dedicated your latest book to your father. You write, in memory of my father, the first Hakakian to write, the last Hakakian to arrive in America. I want to hear more about your arrival story and about your latest book, Royal Hakakian, my guest today here on Where We Live. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. What is it really like to come to this country as a new immigrant? Author Roya Hakakian's new book, A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious, provides an overview of the immigrant experience from what it's like to first arrive and learning a new culture. There's humor in the guidebook, too. What is it really like finding love in this new land? Roya writes, you might say it took God half as many steps to create the universe and ask why American courtship is so prolonged. Roya joins me here on Where We Live on Zoom. She lives in Connecticut. Uh, Roya, you were talking about uh, not wanting to leave Iran, but eventually you came to the U.S. with your mother as refugees. Where did you end up? Um, we first arrived in New York, and um, <clears throat> um, one of the little stories in the book, in one of the tables about, um, you know, Helen and her daughter, Roya, um, is the story of my um, the two of us um, in New York City, and, um, and, and a day that, um, you know, it was a few weeks after we had arrived, I uh, had just begun going to English as a second language classes, um, and my mother didn't speak um, any English. And uh, we used to go to uh, places together. One day I had a job interview in the city and had to leave my mother on the train. So I was very worried that she might not uh, find her way home from the subway station. So I walked with her in into the subway. I put her on the subway and I told her where to get off. And then... Uh, the subway doors closed, and as soon as the doors closed and the train was taking off um, over the intercom system, there was an announcement saying that the 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 N subway that I had put my mother on was going to run on the R line, oh, no. <laughs> which meant that my mother uh, was on the wrong subway. Um, and just 
I was terrified. And, um, you know, the thought that after having brought her down, you know, into the station and walking her on the platform and telling her what to do, I had exactly put her on the wrong train really um, made me, you know, incredibly worried. So um, I returned home. And as the story in the book goes, um, at the end of the day, uh, the conductor, who was an Af- African-American woman who had realized my mother didn't speak English um, and needed to be brought home, had brought her home at the end of her shift, which was one of the most moving early experiences uh, of our immigration. I mentioned my parents immigrated to this country, and I, I feel like we all have those stories of, of moments when American generosity uh, has helped our parents or our grandparents. And you talk about that, uh, not just uh, the, the faults we find in America, whether we're native born or have come to this country, but just the fact that Americans are so generous and this um, this feeling of, of, of service uh, that can be strange to other people coming from different parts of the world. Exactly. Um, you know, it, it, one of the things I tried to do in the book is um, kind of explain the thing that took me a while and perhaps it took your parents a while to understand, um, which is that uh, the generosity we knew uh, or exercised in our home countries uh, isn't the same brand of generosity. For instance, you know, it was very easy for us and continues to be to have people over for meals. You know, it it wasn't even uh, a formal, it didn't even require a formal invitation. You know, if somebody was over, we would say, you know, stay for dinner or um, he, he, it, it, it just didn't take um, all the ceremony it takes um, oftentimes in America to to have people over for a meal. Um, it was very easy and, you know, it, it may not have been, there may not have been enough, but we somehow had um, people come over all the time and join in a meal. And, and it's not so here, you know, people are more formal, you know, they send out invitations and you, you go to their home and they you know, have sometimes placement cards around a table to tell you where to sit. And there's just um, a lot more that goes into um, having a meal in an American home. But on the other hand, uh, Americans, or I should say native-born Americans, because I'm a naturalized American too, uh, native-born Americans exercise generosity in ways that I didn't know. um, And we didn't exercise back home in Iran. for instance, you know, these, um, it, you know, foundations didn't exist um, where I come from. The notion that you could apply as an artist or a writer or uh, a scientist um, to anything but a government body and receive funding to do something, to to continue your work was unthinkable. Um, there were also other things, you know, the, the idea of, um, going to hospitals and holding someone's hand um, just because they were lonely. Um, these things were may have been informal exercises, but but in America they have become part of a national practice. And and I think it took a while for me, as it did for um, my family, to recognize that while we are surprised by certain practices that don't exist here, um, we're just equally surprised by. 
certain practices that we never knew and have come to embrace. Um, and, and I think um, it, that, that took uh, a lot of learning. Again, you don't write this book as a memoir, but more as a guide uh, for the newly arrived immigrant. But are you really writing this for native-born Americans to get a glimpse of of all of the things that immigrants experience and have to learn in this uh, in this new life? Um, you know, I thought um, in 2016, um, when the anti-immigrant rhetoric uh, was reaching a fever pitch. Um, and I was hearing uh, certain statements, um, including the, the idea that immigrants who come here commit crimes, um, that I found incredibly, not just offensive, but downright false. And I thought, what could I do to add something to this conversation? What could I do, given who I was, given uh, that I had come here as a refugee and I had been an immigrant, and knowing everything that I know, was there any way that I could inform this conversation so that people would um, know differently or feel differently? And so um, I had to think long and hard about what it was that would enable me to get people to listen. And, and I realized that, you know, or at least I shouldn't, I should say that I came down on the side of um, the voice of a guidebook because I thought, you know, people have written memoirs as immigrants and we read um, a lot of uh, third person accounts by reporters or policymakers um, uh, about the immigrant experience. And what if I don't do the first person and I don't do the third person and instead I stick to the second person voice and try to bring the native born Americans who have never had, uh, who have never had to be uprooted or transplanted, who have never had this um, um, cataclysmic immigration experience. What if I could bring them very close to the, the thoughts of an immigrant, the feelings of an immigrant, the early experiences of an immigrant? What if I could make the immigrant truly accessible to the people who have never undergone that experience? Would that be a contribution? And, and I thought the answer to that question was yes, um, that, that if I could make the immigrant more accessible, then as a result, perhaps I could make the, you know, I could neutralize the negative ideas that were circulating um, about immigrants. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I think, for me, at least when I first came, without English, without skills, you know, uh, a teenager who was totally disoriented, um, my greatest effort on a daily basis went into putting one foot in front of the other, you know, finding um, finding places, you know, knowing how to get on the subway and get off the subway or, you know, how to find a job. And these uh, elementary things took everything I had and then some. And to think that immigrants would then come here and on top of everything that they had to do, 
um, they were being accused of committing crimes was just, you know, um, not part of uh, in any shape or form what I had known or would be possible in the universe in which I had come into and existed. And, and so the book is an effort to make that experience, which, you know, the, um, so many of us have never had, uh, knowable and accessible to the rest of us. Rhea Kakaki, and again, her new book, A Beginner's Guide to America, America for the Immigrant and the Curious. She's on the show today as we talk about uh, this book and her life. It really stood out to me when you spend time giving a glimpse into what it's really like. Uh, the stages of arrival, you write, are like stages of grief. Can you flesh that out more for us? Yes. You know, um, <laughs> um, I think the stages of arrival, um, exactly as you put it, um, uh, are similar to the stages of grief because um, no matter how difficult um, the circumstances were that we as immigrants leave behind, I think at the end of the day, none of us want to be separated from the place into which we've been born and in which we've been raised. And, and where our, you know, ancestors have been buried. I think the idea that, you know, um, things can be imperfect in places. Um, and as a result, we may have to be driven out of those places because life becomes untenable. Um, is exists. However, it doesn't mean that we do it willingly or that we prefer to leave these places, however imperfect they are. So I think we all arrive, even if we have come willingly, with a certain degree of uh, grief. And, and so we go through these early uh, days, weeks, and months of arrival in the same way that we experience the loss of something important uh, or an important person. So I remember you know, uh, in those early weeks, um, oftentimes people would ask me um, where I was from. I would tell them I was from Iran and they would say, then you must be delighted to be here. And, <clears throat> and you know, eventually I am delighted that I'm here, but I wasn't delighted that I was in America in those early weeks. I, I, and, and that truly just, um, you know, salted my wound because the the, the thought that people thought um, that it was an easy thing to be here or that I had chosen uh, to uproot myself or however many gifts this country had um, uh, or I was benefiting from would uh, neutralize or uh, allay the pain of the loss that I had experienced was unthinkable to me. Um, and so I think, I think it takes a while um, uh, and it takes weeks and months of going through what I described in the book and hear from other fellow immigrants is simply like months of walking through fog, um, which is sort of a physical jet lag, but also an emotional jet lag um, until we emerge from the fog and begin to kind of piece a new life back together. 
Earlier you talked about uh, a lot of the anti-immigrant rhetoric over the last uh, several years and trying to think about a way to write this book that could help uh, native-born Americans and others understand what it's really like. I wanted to ask you your reaction uh, to something that happened. A Georgia man arrested for the shooting deaths of eight people, six of them women who are of Asian descent. You know, when you hear these uh, things happen as someone uh, whose parents are immigrants and um, and when you think about all the times that in the last decade even where certain communities are targeted because of the race. When these situations happen, what runs through your mind? Well, um, the first thing that comes to my mind is that um, it, the, it, they are uh, undoing the promise and the premise of America that the only advantage or or the most important quality that has made America what it is is the idea that it became a destination for uh, for all the people who for one reason or another had chosen to come here um even if unwillingly, but had made this country their destination, or as I say, you know, in the last chapter of the book, um, it's somewhat of a promised land because they could not go on in places where they had been born. And so this is precisely sort of the American formula. It it is what has made this country um, a leading, innovative, Uh, figure or force uh, in the world uh, because we have brought all the, you know, all the nationalities or ethnicities and races from across the world who who thought that being in America would uh, give them the opportunities that they didn't have in their homelands. So I think the first and foremost thing that everyone should recognize, and I hope they do, is that every one of these acts is not an act simply against a single single group of Asians or uh, African-Americans or whomever, but it's an act against the American formula. It's an act against the promise that has made America what it is. So that's the first thing that comes to my mind. The second thing, perhaps, which is equally important to remember is that America has gone through these periods of um, of discrimination and and violent reaction to various racial groups. And while they we must do everything we can to uh, prevent them from occurring, we must also remember that uh, we have, despite the tragedies, um, managed to incorporate these communities within a generation or two uh, in our into the fabric of our societies. So um, our movement as a nation has been a movement toward improvement. And I think we need to keep that up. 
You mentioned generations. Isn't it interesting when uh, a family has been here for several generations and how that uh, feeling of being anti-immigrant starts to bubble up again? It's as if uh, we forget what our uh, our uh, relative have, have experienced. What is that about uh, this country that that, that occurs, Roya? Um, it's very interesting because I find this um, within the Iranian-American community, too, you know, that um, it's as if we come in and as soon as we get in, we want to shut the door on, on people behind us. Um, I, I am not sure I entirely understand it, but I think um, it is a, a negative manifestation of us uh, or our desire to belong. And, and we think that belonging means creating an exclusive club. And, and therefore excluding other people, because if we're going to belong, we should be the only ones here. Um, however, the, the truth is that um, we, we continue to exercise this strange uh, ritual, which is almost like a hazing ritual, which um, we inflict uh, discrimination or um, you know, we inflict damage, harm onto new immigrant communities um, when they begin to arrive. And then, um, and then a generation or two later, we begin to regret it and, and uh, kind of, uh, you know, the next generations begin to express remorse and uh, do the opposite, you know, celebrate um, those communities that came. Um, and, and I think uh, it's important to uh, keep telling ourselves that if we have become the nation that we have become, if we have contributed to um, you know, global innovation and uh, leadership in whatever way, it has in fact been in a great part because of this human salad, uh, medley of racial and ethnic communities of people to come here and thrive. And the moment we cease to do that is the moment that we cease to be the America that has had an edge. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Roya Hakakian, an author and poet. She lives in Connecticut. Her latest book, A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. If you go to our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, you can read an excerpt of this book. We'll continue our conversation right after a quick break. You're listening to Where We Live. My guest today on Zoom, Roya Hakakian, an author and poet. Her latest book, A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. It's not all serious, uh, Roya. Uh, definitely humor uh, throughout, including America's obsession with the weather and our pets. Uh, but I wondered if you could read an excerpt from your book for us. Sure. Uh, this is a passage from a chapter called The Diaspora. And um, here's how it goes. In lieu of haggling, once the most satisfying aspect of any shopping experience for your fellow expatriates, they have embraced the exercise of returning, which might well be haggling's fair-haired twin. On weekends, they load their spacious trunks with the purchased goods they plan to return, something that was unthinkable where they, where they came from. At first, 
They even return the things they need just to see if they can. When this belief gives way to faith in the sanctity of the return policy, they begin to return only what truly needs returning. They had expected to see the suspension bridges, the underwater tunnels, the endless forests and bottomless seas, but it is the exercise of returning goods that is the surest sign of America's greatness to them. The experience of an underwater tunnel lasts only a few minutes. However, the experience of a trial sweatshirt whose price tag scratches against the nape lasts for days. It is why they cherish their receipts and keep them alongside other well-guarded family, family treasures. Returning items is the, is the proof that the consumer, one of the several manifestations of the citizen, is formidable here. It is the evidence that anything is possible because a one-time decision need not be destiny. You can change your fate here and turn it in for a better one. Taking the oath of allegiance is a rote promise. To stand head high at a customer service counter, receipt in hand, turning in an unwanted garment is an actual step toward claiming one's rights, acting as an entitled citizen would. Even after all these years, each time a reluctant shopkeeper takes an item back, you stagger out in awe, praising God and his most unsung messenger, George Washington. This is one of the many small joys of living in America that only you, privileged with a keen knowledge of despotism, deeply cherish. <laughs> <laughs> I love that when I read it, uh, Roy. Uh, uh, throughout the book, you also talk about democracy, but in a different way than how we may think of it, uh, such as our voting rights. Uh, you see American democracy really in every part of our life, including the observations that uh, you make of people. They're just hanging out at a public park. Can you talk about that? Yes. You know, I think I think it it. You know, and it's one of the things that I have um, come to in the past few years, you know, especially since 2016, that part of the reason uh, it's become uh, questionable whether we need to fight for, for this democracy, uh, it, I think, is is because we can see its daily small manifestations in our lives and in how on a routine basis we benefit from its gifts. And I think, you know, um, one of the things I try to do in the book is to try to make these small manifestations that may be invisible to those who have never lived in an undemocratic society visible. So, you know, <laughs> I, in this passage, I refer to, you know, returning items because it was unthinkable where I came from that we returned something to the store. Nobody took anything back. Um, you know, another manifestation is, you know, the, the simple idea that that we can wear whatever we want <clears throat> and and go to the park and, you know, chill on the lawn and just lay down on the grass and, you know, play whatever music we want um, in in the headphones and, uh, and be um, was also unthinkable where I come from, you know, in Iran. Women were subject to mandatory dress code 
we couldn't decide what it was um, that we wanted to put on. We had to put on what the what the laws and government told us um, we had to. So these these small joys um, need to be seen if we are going to nurture and cultivate and uh, propagate this democracy. Because uh, if we don't, um, it may seem like just a routine um, every four years an election ordeal that will then become easier to lose. You mentioned earlier that you are now an American citizen. What was that naturalization process like for you? You poke fun at even the term uh, being naturalized in the book. Um, you know, I, I delayed it for many, many years. Um, I could have become um, naturalized five years after I had received my green card, but I didn't do it um, until after 10, perhaps 12 years. It took me a long time, and in part because um, I, I just couldn't reconcile with the idea of, you know, um, giving up something else that I had been for so long and then, um, you know, switching. I, it seemed um, exactly unnatural uh, to naturalize because um, how could we truly um, surrender um, you know, 18 years of our lives. So I had to, I had to kind of um, piece it together in a way that would be uh, morally acceptable to myself. And um, and finally, after 10 or 12 years, um, I remember going to the courthouse in New Haven um, with a friend um, who was very excited um, to watch me. And I remember thinking that the only reason I could do it was because to become an American um, would allow and even embrace the notion of me as the person from all these other places or all these other components that I was. And it was with that in mind that I was able to um, become naturalized only when I realized that I didn't have to surrender um, those other pieces, but um, but that becoming an American allowed me to weave those in into um, who I was becoming now. We live in an interesting time uh, when we think about the conversations around uh, racial justice. Uh, Roya, in your book, uh, you write um, about how um, immigrants should view this history and their expectations of being seen as equals in America. What is your message uh, to immigrants listening today? Well, for one thing, um, uh, I certainly, when first came to this country, um, didn't think that um, any of the history of uh, racial injustices um, had anything to do with me. Um, because, you know, I had been a refugee. I had come from somewhere else. I uh, had never been part of uh, what had happened here. But in truth, um, you know, after 10, 20 uh, years, um, when I become a naturalized citizen and I see that, um, you know, uh, I'm having an easier time uh, living here as an immigrant and being accepted by the broader uh, American community um, as an immigrant, and as someone from, you know, elsewhere, 
then I have to think about how this happened. And and it is only lately that I have, you know, in the past few years, that I have begun to see that the reason we as immigrants um, are more accepted um, and find it easier to be, um, uh, you know, to thrive here <clears throat> is because there has been this long-standing history of racial struggle for equality. And, and I have begun to recognize that um, if the African-American community had not done all that it has done in order to reach or make the American society a more equal society, um, I would have never been uh, the immigrant that I am today. That, uh, that I owe them um, this, this acceptance and the space that they have created for people who are not uh, of the same complexion or the same origin to be uh, brought in to this country and accepted far more than, say, in other Western societies. So finally, after all these years, I'm beginning to see that even though um, I had no part in uh, you know, the racial history of this country, um, but I have become uh, an unwitting beneficiary of the struggle that it has taken to make America more equal. I wanted to end on this quote from your book, A Beginner's Guide to America, related to what we just uh, talked about. You must do all you can to tell the story of the slaves and their indispensable legacy to your children, because if their story fades, the story of immigrants will fade too. Then before you know it, you will no longer be welcome. Roya Hakakian, it was a pleasure to speak with you this hour about your new book. I hope to invite you back sometime. Thank you, Lucy. I truly enjoyed it. Today's show was produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer this week is Eugene Amatruda. Thank you, Jean. Our theme music for Where We Live is composed by Hannes Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thank you.